Turn with me to Genesis chapter 3, if you would. We'll be studying verses 1 to 7. I'm sure most of you are aware that the BSU football coach this last fall jeopardized his whole career by spying on the Northern Arizona University football team. Now, why would he do that? Why would he take it so seriously that he'd want to jeopardize his career to spy on the team? Well, he knew that if you know what your opponent does, if you're aware of how he operates and works, then you can better enter a contest against him. You can better defend yourself against his attacks. And it's for this reason that God has given us this glimpse in Genesis 3 of how Satan operates. It's customary for football teams to exchange uh, films of their former games with their coming opponent so that they can both see how one another has operated in the past. It's a, a courtesy that they do with one another. And this chapter is sort of like a game film that God has supplied for us so that we can see how Satan has operated in the past in his attacks against Eve. And in doing that, we can learn how he attacks against us and thus better able, or, uh, be better able to stand against them. Let's read these verses together. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, You shall not eat from every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat from it or touch it lest you die. And the serpent said to the woman, You surely shall not die. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate. And she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. Now notice, first of all, in verse 1, it says that the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field. He was more subtle and devious. We notice, first, first of all, that Satan didn't come to Eve and say, Hello there, young lady. Allow me to introduce myself. I happen to have the body of a serpent, but really I am an evil spirit being. I hate God, and I have rebelled against him so that I can be like God. And I'm here today to try to talk you into rebelling against God too. Now it's true that God has your best interest at, uh, at heart, and it's true that after the brief pleasures of sin you will suffer disastrous consequences, but nevertheless, I ask you to take this step with me and rebel against God so that I can laugh in his face because of your action. He doesn't do that. That's what he's up to. But he doesn't appeal to her that way. Would that Satan were so direct. We would be able to immediately recognize him and his attacks upon us. We would say, that is utterly stupid. That would be absurd for me to give in to that kind of temptation. And yet he appeals to us in that way, but in a way that's more subtle. It's more devious. 
it'll behoove us to look then, see how he does appeal to uh, Eve, and then see how he uses the same tactics to tempt us as well. The first thing we notice in verse 1 is that Satan raises a question. He raises a doubt in the mind of Eve regarding the goodness and the wisdom of God. We should probably translate the question uh, like the margin of the New American Standard suggests. Indeed, has God said to you, you shall not eat from every tree of the garden? Satan focuses her attention on the restrictions that God has placed upon her. Really, it's only one restriction. In Genesis 2, the creation of the garden, placing of man and woman in that garden, the focus and attention of that chapter and emphasis is certainly upon the freedom and the bounty of life and the beauty of the garden that God has made. And yet Satan takes just the one restriction God has placed and focuses attention on that. He says, has God said you can't eat of every tree? And the way he asked it must have been implying, well, if God has said that, surely there's something wrong with God, isn't there? You mean he's placing some restrictions upon you? You mean he's trying to bind you and deny you from something that you might want? Surely you know better than God what you need and what you ought to have. Why, it's not right for him to place those kind of restrictions on you. Why, if I were you, I'd stand up and demand my rights and assert myself. That's his appeal to Eve. He subtly raises that question regarding God's goodness and his wisdom. Whenever you feel that God's way of life is too binding and too restricting, then you can be sure that you are being tempted by Satan as well. Whenever you feel that you know uh, what is right better than God, you know how to run your life, you can be sure that Satan is, is at work. Whenever you feel that you need to assert yourself because you're not getting your rights, you need to stand up and demand them. And you can bet that Satan is attacking you. These attacks might come in, in many different ways. For some of you, it may be the temptation or the feeling, well, I just cannot live with this husband or this wife or with these parents any longer. I cannot do this and be happy. Surely if God says I have to honor this relationship, then there must be something wrong with God or his plan. I cannot be happy living under these circumstances. And Satan injects a thought in your mind. Well, certainly it's, it's right for you to be happy and to have your way and not be bound and restricted. And if this situation and these rules that God lays upon you are too restricting, certainly there's something wrong with them. And if I were you, I would overthrow this regime, set up your own rules, and break out of the bounds that God has placed upon you. Or maybe you feel... It's not right for God to have given me such a strong sex drive, and yet I'm single, or my spouse is sick. Certainly, if I have these within me and it's part of my nature, I deserve to have some kind of outlet. So it must be okay to play around a little bit. So you find God's rules for you 
too binding and restricting and you feel that you need to break out of them. Or maybe Satan comes to you through the, the pressures of culture because the world system, as the scripture says, is, is under his control and sway and influences us away from God oftentimes. Maybe you hear the teachings of current psychology that say you cannot shut off your anger. You have to vent it or else it will be bottled up inside of you and do you psychological harm and create turmoil in you. And you read verses in which God says, put away anger and wrath and bitterness and malice, foul talk from your mouth. You say, yes, but certainly I cannot have psychological harm done to me. If I feel angry, certainly I should be free to express that anger. Lest I get all bottled up inside and become a tense person and get ulcers. And so you think God's rules are not livable. And you think that either bottling up or expressing the anger is the only way to deal, or the only ways to deal with it. But whatever the appeal, when you feel that you're restricted, and you think that you know better than God, and you start to question the, either the goodness of God for making these rules or else his wisdom for making them, then you can be sure that you are being tempted by Satan, even as Eve was here. We see Eve's response in verses 2 and 3. She responds to him as if his question was a straightforward one without any evil intent. And so she answers him, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said you shall not eat from it or touch it lest you die. Now God hadn't said you shall not touch it, some suggest that she added this and her problem was, was uh, a legalistic approach to, to living under God's rule. Others suggest that, that maybe she and Adam had gotten together and said, well, look, let's don't even touch it lest we get too close and the temptation overtake us. We don't really know. But we do know, notice from chapter 2 that God had given man and woman dominion over the earth, and in particular over the beasts of the field. And here, the first beast that tries to exert itself over the man and the woman is successful. Rather than sensing the innuendo in his question, the implication of it, she answers him. She should have simply seen him as a threat to her obedience to God and exerted her dominion and control over him and put him down. But she didn't do that. And so we see that he's gaining success already. And then in verse 4, we see the second of Satan's tactics. And the serpent said to the woman, You surely shall not die. The second of his tactics, his strategies, is to deny that sin has inevitable consequences. He says, Eve, you can get away with it. Oh, God may have threatened that something would happen if you gave in to sin. But his threat is no more than the threat of the Sunday school teacher who told her students not to be involved in premarital sex unless they get warts all over their bodies. God's just an old religious fuddy-duddy up there just trying to make your life restricted. It won't come true. You can get away with it. I had a, somebody in a counseling session recently 
And he came to me because he, he felt himself enslaved with a habit that he wanted to get out of, he didn't like. He said, one of the things that bothers me in this and helps keep me in it is that I can get away with it. But that is the lie of Satan. To make you think that you can get away with sin. To make you think that any sin has no consequences. Because all sin does. I'm sure you can get away with it in some ways. Maybe your spouse won't divorce you and your boss won't fire you. They won't jail you and your hair won't fall out. But still, sin always has inevitable consequences tied to it. Even the smallest sin reinforces us in our independence and rebellion against God. And it hardens our heart against Him. And we know that real life comes from living in close and open relationship with God. Even the smallest thought soon becomes an attitude. And the attitude soon becomes an action. And the action soon becomes an enslaving habit. We know that God's way, which leads to fulfillment, is a life that's full of giving and serving and loving others. And yet, whenever we give in to even the smallest sin, we're reinforcing a pattern of selfishness in ourselves, which cuts us off from God's way of life and from fulfillment. So sin always has consequences. Whatever you feel, though, well, it doesn't really make that much difference. If I just give in this once, if I just yell back at this person this one time, it's okay. Or it's okay if just this once, I'll close my heart against my neighbor's need, forget about the world, just indulge myself and do my own thing. It really doesn't matter if I do it just this once. Whenever you feel yourself being lackadaisical about sin, not taking it that seriously, then you can know that you're being victimized by Satan. He has got you in his clutches. You're falling prey to his schemes. Because that's what he says to Eve. You can get away with it. doesn't really make that much difference. How different our lives would be, I think, if we really took seriously the scriptural teaching that sin does have its consequences always. So if you observe yourself, as I see in myself, how frequently and how easily we give in to certain sins. Well, after we've been a Christian for a while, most of us don't give in to, to the more obvious things. Uh, we don't beat up our spouses and children and neighbors and rob banks and things like that. But how easily we give in to sins of the mind. And we let evil thoughts in our mind and then we feed and nurture them rather than judge them. Maybe it's the person who does something that you don't like or rubs you the wrong way and how easily you may let a, a slanderous thought in your mind and build up a bad attitude against that person. Or maybe somebody slights you or treats you in a way that you think is not right or not what you expected at least. How easily you let a resentful, unforgiving attitude build up in you. Or maybe you find a thought into your mind that you really want to impress somebody, you want them to think well of you, and before you know it, that thought has turned into a dominating motivation. You find yourself living to please men rather than please God. And we do these kinds of things. We're simply falling prey to, to Satan's tactics. He says it doesn't really make any difference. 
Because if we really took the scriptural teaching seriously, we would judge those sins, even the sins of the mind, at the first thought. When the first thought enters the mind, we would deal with them and put them away because we know that they're going to have bad consequences if we let them uh, fester and develop within our mind. Well, that's Satan's second tech. To get us to think that, that we can get away with it. To get us to think that, that sin doesn't have inevitable consequences. And then in verse 5, we see the third of his strategies. He focuses on the benefits of sin. He says in verse 5, For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. He focuses on the pleasures of sin, having denied the consequences of sin already. And he says, look at all the good things that sin has for you. And of course, in painting this picture of the loveliness of sin, he has to distort reality. He has to distort the pleasures and make them appear pure and good. And he has to deny the consequences, or at least just ignore them. And he tells Eve, if you eat of this fruit, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. Something that would appeal to her pride. Something that seemed very lovely to her. But God did not want man to know evil experientially. Possibly God eventually wanted to teach man and woman something about the difference between good and evil in a, in a way that, in which they wouldn't be defiled. Or maybe his plan was just to protect them from the stain and defilement of having to deal with all that stuff. I know for myself that my life is not particularly enriched by knowing about murder and rape and adultery and Hitler and Jim Jones and things like that. Maybe God just planned not to to uh, bother and contaminate his people with all this evil. But Satan appeals to her and says it'll be great. And he can do this with us and get away with it because sin is fun. In a certain way and for a while, it's fun in a certain sense to talk back to somebody and tell them off and to feel that you uh, won that battle and that you showed that person up. It's fun at least until you find that it's making you a better person, revengeful. It's fun to shut out the world around you and to live selfishly, self-indulgently, to be irresponsible, to be lazy. At least it's fun for a little while. It's fun to indulge in adultery and, and uh, other sensual sins like that and get drunk, at least for a while. And so this is Satan's appeal to us. It's fun. Come and do it. It'll be great and fulfilling. But his appeal is kind of like the appeal of a man who asks us to, to enjoy the new sport of jumping off skyscrapers. Well, you laugh, but it's really fun. Have you ever tried it? You have a, it's, 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 uh, has sensations that you can't repeat in any other sport. <laughs> You feel a total sense of freedom as you, uh, as you whiz down and you, and you have the, the great, uh, uh, sensual pleasures of seeing the whole world pass quickly before your eyes. It's like a psychedelic experience. And the thrill is more intense than skiing at top speed down a mountain slope or racing in a race car around the, 
uh, Indy 500 track. It's it's really fantastic. Now you should try jumping off of skyscrapers. Now it is true that there are certain consequences when you reach the end of the uh, jump, uh, but we won't talk about those. Uh, but I guess if we're realistic, maybe we should mention that there are some consequences you might not want to have to live with, or you cannot live with. <laughs> but this is sort of like Satan's appeal. He paints the picture very lovely, makes it look very lovely and beautiful, and makes sin look attractive and magnifies it. And that's what he does to us. When you start to feel that sin looks really great, you know, it'd be neat to go ahead and do this this one time. I've always wanted to to give in and, and do this one thing. Then you can know that Satan is attacking you as well as he is attacking Eve. When we read verse 6, we see that Satan's attacks were successful on all three fronts. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate. And she gave also to her husband with her and he ate. Satan was successful in causing her to doubt the goodness and wisdom of God. Because if she had maintained a belief that God was good, had her best interests in mind, that he was wise and his way was always going to be right, then she certainly wouldn't have, have listened to and believed this diabolical creature who was tempting her. But he got her to think, well, maybe you know better than God. Or you know what you need and you're more interested in yourself than he is. We see that he's successful and and making her think that sin doesn't have consequences. Certainly, if she thought that she was going to die, as God said, she wouldn't have done what she did. But he made her believe that she could get away with it. And he was successful in focusing her attention on the benefits of sin. As she looks and she sees that the tree was good and, it would, and the fruit would be delicious, it was a beautiful thing that she wanted to pick and and hold and caress. And she saw that and believed that it would make her wise. And that was a, an egotistical boost to her to think about being like God, being exalted. And so she lost on all fronts and took of the fruit and ate. And then she gave to her husband to eat. Now back in chapter 2, notice with me, in verse 16, let me read verses 16 to 18 of chapter 2. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the guard you may freely eat, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat from it you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Well, in this context, what was the woman to be a helper of? Well, most specifically, she was to be a helper of the man as he lived under the rule of God and fulfill this command. Verse 15 also includes her helping him to fulfill God's commands to cultivate the garden and keep it. But instead of helping man to have dominion over sin and to live under God's rule, instead, tragically, 
she turns and entices him to join her in her sin. And then in verse 7, we see the consequences of their action. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. Satan had promised that their eyes would be opened. Indeed, they were opened. But it wasn't quite what he had painted it to be. Sin wasn't all that it was cracked up to be. Because their eyes were opened, but they found instead of being godlike and wise and powerful, that instead they experienced shame and the fracturing of their relationship. In chapter 2, at the end of the description of the creation of woman and of the marriage of man and woman, we have the statement that the man and, the, and his wife were both naked and they were unashamed. They had a relationship in which they were open and honest. They didn't have anything to hide with one another. The kind of relationship we all long for. And yet here, as a result of their sin, they feel that their spirits are defiled. And now they want to hide from one another. And so they make clothing for themselves, symbolic of of hiding not just their physical bodies, but what's in the, what's on the inside. And so they experience shame, and that shame then causes a fracturing of their social relationships. And that's what sin got them. Satan had promised a lot, but he had been successful by distorting reality, making sin to be something it wasn't. He got them to he got her to doubt the goodness and wisdom of God and think that she could be the judge of what was right for her. She got her to he got her to think that she could get away with it, and sin wouldn't really have a price to pay. And she got her uh, he got her to focus on the pleasures and benefits of sin. And thus he was able to be successful and to cause this tragic fall of all of mankind. Let's pray together. God would make us strong, enable us to observe and recognize our foe during the coming week.